Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is deco delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus, one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace its blessings. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and class clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the 15th of June, uh, 2021, and this is the second of three talks that we're having on the Ten Cardinal Precepts. Uh, this is in pre preparation for our Jukai ceremony, which will be um, happening in a few weeks, the 4th of July, Sunday the 4th of July. And uh, just for anybody who wasn't here last time, two weeks ago, um, we were looking into the precepts as um, trainings and drawing on the, the version of the precepts by Thich Nhat Hanh, which we'll continue to do for this talk as well. Um, in other words, the precepts are not handed down to us from some supreme being, and there's no, there's no system of reward and punishment connected to them in the sense of, of being rewarded if you're good and punished if you're bad. It's much more in the in the spirit of we're seeking to harmonize with the way the universe works, with a kind of impersonal force. Um, harmonize with the the laws of of cause and effect. Um, 
Let's read a little bit from uh, Finding Your Seat. So, quote myself. Um, Just as in our Zazen, we start with learning good posture, how to sit up straight and align the spine and the rest of the body. In our lives, we are also seeking alignment. We wish to align with the truth of the universe and to learn how to live harmlessly. Of course, it's not easy to rectify or straighten out our mind because we have come into this life conditioned in certain ways. So the first step is one of beginning to recognize our errors, whether they're of thinking, speaking, or acting. This really is the, to begin to see our suffering clearly. Our suffering can actually be a great help because it's like a red arrow saying attachment here that whatever's going on, we need to look right there. We need to understand that this universe that we're a part of is a great round. So whatever we send out, we eventually receive back. Of course, this is, is because it doesn't really go out anywhere. Since we're not truly separate from the world in which we live, whatever we send out, we send to ourselves. This is seen in Buddhism as a natural law. The technical term in Buddhist teachings for this law is karma vipaka. In this word pair, karma means action, while vipaka is result or reaction. So the two together are concerned with cause and effect. Everything, every dharma in this world, it's everything, every phenomenon, is the result of a previous action and can be the cause of a subsequent action. And each action we take lays down tracks in the mind. Um, in, in one of the Pali Suttas, the Buddha gives a classic uh, statement of this point. He says, my action is my possession. My action is my inheritance. My action is the womb that bears me. My action is my refuge. Most of us probably understand clearly that our actions in the world flow out of our mind stream, that any action we take must depend on our understanding, our judgment, our mood and intention in any given moment. But somewhat more subtle teaching of karma is that not only does our mind stream give rise to actions, but equally do our actions shape our mind stream. When we willingly cause harm, we obscure our true nature and contort our own mind. So... Um, the precepts, we could understand the precepts as being um, protective. They protect us. They protect us against our own defilements, our, our own uh, selfishness. And they protect others from our defilements too. Uh, that, uh, if, we, if we uphold the precepts, then we avoid harmful behavior that can be um, damaging, destructive. It's a little bit like um, like putting a, a stake in a new sapling. The, the stake's there to hold that sapling straight. Um, but as the sapling grows and strengthens, then, then the stake uh, can be pulled out and the, and the tree is strong and straight. So when, when we're deeply um, enlightened, then uh, the precepts are incorporated into our being. We don't uh, need to sort of apply them from the outside.
um, as a, a Vajrayana teacher called Alexander Berzin who, who said this about the precepts. He says, nobody has made up the rules as to what is constructive or deconstructive. It's just the natural way of the universe that some actions cause us suffering and others do not. For instance, if we stick our hand in a fire, we're going to get burnt and it's going to hurt. That's a destructive action, right? Nobody made up that rule. It's just the natural way things are. So if somebody wants to stick their hand in the fire, it doesn't make them a bad person. It makes them a foolish person or a person who doesn't understand cause and effect. But it certainly doesn't make them a bad person. So you could say the, the, that you can understand the precepts as trainings in the sense that they're um, there to help us understand which types of behaviours um, are destructive and which are constructive. What supports uh, our healthiest aspiration and what doesn't. Um, so a term that's often used in the, the teachings on the precepts is wholesome. So there are, there are activities... Um, ways of speaking, ways of, of thinking that, that uh, serve our, our integrity or, or our um, sense of wholeness. And then there are, there are unwholesome activities that, that tend towards our fragmentation or our confusion, confusion um, which make our lives more, more fraught and more complicated. We were talking last time about the precept on not to kill, and one of the um, the themes of that um, of that precept is not to kill the mind of compassion and reverence. This was the fundamental um, uh, thrust behind that first precept. But really, you could say that every every one of these ten precepts are aiming at, at uh, nurturing and protecting our mind of compassion and reverence. So last, last time we had, we'd, uh, we'd got as far as uh, number two, I resolve not to take what is not given, but to respect the property of others. And we'll just add in another one here, because it, it, this one about not stealing naturally pairs with, with a later one, number eight, I resolve not to withhold spiritual or material aid, but to give them freely where needed. So these these present, in a sense, they present the, the two sides of um, greed or generosity, if we take the positive. The, the, the not to take what is not given addresses our our wanting and our grasping, our wanting what we don't have. And then the second one about not withholding spiritual material aid addresses our, our clinging to what we do have, uh, tightly um, holding on to it. Our stinginess, you could say. 
And this this um, eighth one also isn't talking just about um, riches or monetary wealth, but um, are we stingy with our time or our knowledge or our attention, uh, our care? Um, each of them we could see as having antidotes. Um, contentment and gratitude for not stealing. Um, generosity and sharing of wealth of all kinds for the for the for number eight. Um, just read for you the, the, the Thich Nhat Hanh versions of these which actually go a couple which we could relate to this the, these um, two precepts. Do not accumulate wealth while millions go hungry. Do not take as your aim of, of your life fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. Do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. The, the way that, that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh formulates these precepts really um, brings in a kind of global perspective that we all um, are aware of. It's not just about some tight, tight sort of personal thing, but um, uh, I think of what we say when we, we, we do the um, um, the three refuges, we say, we may take the refuge and we say, and with all beings I will enter deeply into the sutra treasure. To do everything with all beings, to not leave them out The other one relates to these is uh, number 13. Possess nothing that should belong to others. Respect the property of others, but prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. So um, sometimes people will... will actually, I think of a story about Robert Louis Stevenson um, that illustrates this. Um, he came upon somebody who was beating his dog, and and he said something to this guy, and he said the guy who was doing the beating of the dog said, "Well, it's my dog, and I can beat it if I want to." And Robert Louis Stevenson said, "It's God's dog. Stop beating it." <laughs> and so this in this precept. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh is definitely wanting to say respect people's property, but there are there are there are values and important things that go beyond the idea of private property, which is often very destructive.
So, so, um, I resolve not to take what is not given, but to respect the property of others. I've been reading a, a book that recently came out. You can find it here. Climate Aotearoa, what's happening and what we can do about it. And it's edited by Helen Clark. And the very first um, chapter in the book is um, quite extraordinary in its... In its um, uh, the beauty of its language and, and its message. And it's by um, Haley Koroi. Uh, she's an indigenous sovereignty activist and a public health advisor, Maori public health advisor. Um, and she's from Te Rarawa. Um, and she tells the story of of um, what happened in her in her um, area, which is in the in the far north, up around uh, Kaitaia. And I'll just read you a little bit from her her account. Tangonge was the name of the lake located in Pukepoto. Its name refers to the sound of the wind as it blows through the leaves of the taro and the berries of the kahikatea, as well as providing fertile soils and water for nearby gardens. Lake Tangonge was used regularly as a place to gather tuna, pipi, freshwater mullet called kānai raukura, freshwater mussels called kaio, and a particular type of short-sighted duck. <laughs> Poor duck was easy to catch, I'm guessing. On all sides of the lake, various hapu would exercise their rights to access the lake and its fruits daily. The centrality of the lake within daily life was clear and is recorded in particular by one local, Herepete Rapihana, who said, we, we relied upon the lake in former times for our food supplies. Our people had their homes along the edge of the lake whilst engaged in fishing or hunting. He also vividly recalls significant changes in the lake due to heavy rains or high winds, which would fell trees across the river's mouth. He talks about a particular instance when willows partly blocked the Kaitaia River and more water was diverted down the Mangafero stream into the lake. The Māori, alarmed at the rise of the lake, then dug a drain to reopen the Waiho Channel on the north side. Locals were committed to reducing the swollen lake levels and retaining the lake as a food pantry. However, in 1913, this incident was taken advantage of and drainage operations were carried out by the government under the Kaitaia Land Drainage Act. The lake and its entire fisheries were destroyed. The lake was drained again in the 1920s under the Swamp Drainage Act to open up new land for returning soldiers and dairy farming. Many of the local hapu were against the plans to drain the lake, but, only, but not only would they not benefit from its draining in any way, but they would be significantly worse, worse off, having lost a vital food source. 
she goes on to talk about how this was repeated all over the country, um, destru destruction of, of um, wetlands and what a negative effect this had on the whole environment. But, but in, in this case, um, a part of the, the, um, the kind of what was happening here was um, not respecting the property of others, taking what was not given. And tragically, not being able to see the effects of one's actions. So the ignorance that was in there, not understanding, thinking that, that swamp draining was um, a good, imagining it to be a good. And that's one of the, the parts of the, of the, um, the precepts, is um, looking deeply into things and seeing whether um, it is truly beneficial or not. You could say there was a short-term gain in draining the swamp and giving, and giving, having more land to give to, to men returning from the First World War, but, but long-term negative effects in terms of um, the destruction of the ecosystem, which is a carbon sink, and um, incredible loss to the, the local people that wasn't even recognised because they, the whole the ecosystem wasn't seen, the Maori weren't seen either. We can see in this the, the way in which not only are there we do we suffer from personal greed and, and hostility and ignorance, the three poisons, but these these uh, poisons can be active in us in our systems. And you could say that the, the individual perpetrators of this act um, were caught up in a kind of collective blindness, a blindness that was in the culture, that was in uh, colonialism. And uh, the empire, ideas about empire and the moral and, and cultural superiority of, of white people over indigenous people, narrow-mindedness. So stealing, we can we can interpret stealing in in many different ways, and the negative um, effects can be can be short term or or very long term. Still being felt, the the wound still being felt now, but from that act of destruction. We look at the, this uh, second precept that goes along with it. Um, it's quite complex. You can, the, 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 um, the general instruction is not to be, to, to be stingy, to give where, where help is needed, whether spiritual or uh, material help. But, but there has to be wisdom with it too. Um, there's a local vicar here who was telling me that when she first came, she had a fund, and uh, when homeless people would come to her, she would give them she would give them money out of this fund, and um, she quickly learnt that it wasn't wasn't very helpful because she would have a uh, the word got around and a stream of people would be knocking on the door of the church asking for money. So after that, she changed and gave 
took people and sat them down and gave them a cup of coffee or got them a meal and engaged with them and uh, found, and I think continues to find, that's a more a wiser form of, of, um, of generosity. But this is one that can be can be a um, can be a con for people. How do we react when um, when we're asked by by somebody destitute what to what? How do we respond? How do we um, respond with compassion and wisdom? There's a there's there's a koan number 10 in the Mumon Khan, which, which um, could be applied in, the, in the, these situations. It goes like this. A monk, Seizai by name, said to Master Sozan, I am poor and alone. I beg you, Master, please make me rich. Sozan said, Venerable Seizai? Yes, Master, replied Seizai. Sozan said, you have already drunk three cups of the finest wine of China, but still say your lips are not yet moistened. What does he mean? What does Master Sozan mean when he says, you've already drunk three cups of the finest wine of China? Somebody, somebody asking you for money on the street might... might um, they not need that money. That may not be the most important thing. How you respond, how you interact may be um, much more important. We may also um, have questions about um, how much we to donate. What's what's the what's the right level for uh, uh, giving? What feels right to us? And somebody Zen Center member is telling me that um, she practices abundance, which um, she's done ever since um, she, she was quite young and was on a very tight budget. But she um, decided she would give away ten percent of what she earned. And um, just doing this actually imparts, uh, imparted and imparts a sense of plenty. The reverse is also true. If we if we hold back, and uh, then we will um, generate a feeling of not having enough. So much more we could say here, but um, I don't want to get. I don't know. I want to leave enough time to talk to the ne to the next grouping of uh, uh, precepts. So maybe we'll just um, stop there and um, go on to the the next ones. The ones on speech. And here there are. There are three which we can group together. 
I resolve not to lie, but to speak the truth. I resolve not to gossip about the faults of others, but to acknowledge my own shortcomings. And I resolve not to praise myself and disparage others, but to speak with humility and extol virtue. So, um, right speech. a little bit about words here. If we wish to free ourselves from suffering, we must bring our speech into harmony with that aspiration. We must work towards speaking in ways that do not cause harm to others or ourselves. In these early teachings, right speech is presented as having five different aspects abstention from lying, from slander, from abusive speech, from half speech, harsh speech, and from idle chatter or gossip. So this, is, this grouping is slightly different from the one we have in our precepts, but the, the, the point is that um, any kind of dissembling or aggressive or divisive words or superficial or meaningless speech are all seen as being um, unwholesome. This word unwholesome is to the point. Words by their very nature enable us to distinguish one thing from another and from the whole. They divide the one into many. As well, they can be separated from the things they refer to. We can talk about a tiger without actually being one, having one in front of us. These two properties are what make words so useful and at the same time what make them so dangerous. When we speak, there is always the potential to forget the whole picture or the actual picture. We can even speak about what does not exist. To say the horns of a rabbit breaks no laws of um, language. This is a, a term that was used in the, sometimes in ancient Chinese texts the horns of a rabbit to, to bring out the, the way that the language doesn't have to actually relate directly to some actuality. And um, my, one of my the, the, uh, teachers at the Zen Center, uh, Sonia Kolhead, uh, Roshi Kolhead's um, um, sister, once found a, a postcard out, out west somewhere of the jackalope, which was a which was a hare, which had had um, photo montaged uh, horns on it. <laughs> so pictures can lie too. And it was called a jackalope, antelope, jackrabbit. We must also keep in mind the intimate connections, but that exist between how we speak, how we think, and what we experience. Because these three are so closely related, we get them all mixed up. The thing itself often gets obscured by the mental and verbal formations that arise around it. Language is a major factor in our ability to disconnect, to live inside a virtual world of ideas and stories which are no longer in tune with reality.
any, 11, any evolutionary step the psyche takes, as Jung pointed out, Jung pointed out, creates new perils. A peril inherent in our highly evolved use of language is that we are equipped with subtle powers of deception. We often mistake our thoughts and words for the truth. We don't see how tenuous their relationship to reality has become. So um, you, could say, you could say words are a minefield. So here we've got um, these three um, precepts, not lying, not gossiping, not boasting. Um, obviously, um, not lying, an antidote to that is, is, is truthfulness or sincerity. Um, the, the antidote to um, not gossiping Working towards recognizing our own um, shortcomings. Because that's actually where we can do something. We can do something about that. We can't often do much about um, the, the shortcomings of others that bother us. And from a psychological point of view, often we are engaging with um, our own shadow stuff and projecting it on to, to people around us. It's a way of engaging with it without, with kind of, without kind of becoming fully conscious of it. It's belonging to us. Not boasting. The antidote is um, really s s recognizing others' good points, rejoicing in them. So we can relate this to, to mudita, the... the um, Third aspect of the uh, Brahma Viharas, joy in others' good fortune and, and, and good qualities. There are, of course, there are times when we need to speak of somebody's faults and shortcomings. There are, there are um, uh, times in our work. Uh, uh, If we're engaging with in uh, in different kind of issues, political issues, it can be important to speak up about um, injustice, for instance. Of course, Thich Nhat Hanh doesn't miss this. Um, one of his the precepts on speech is um, he says um, about taking a clear stand against impression being willing to stand up again uh, and point out injustice. You could say that this is pointing out faults. But what really is important is the motivation, what's behind it. The Quakers have a good phrase. They talk about speaking truth to power. But it is, it is getting into this area of, of, of politics um, we can get caught up in the power games and get and um, become partisan and um, taking taking sides as we get into the kind of a power politics. So always looking at our motives is really important. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh has two other precepts that that um, look at speech. Um, they are 
was eight and nine. Do not utter words that create discord and cause the community to break. Make every effort to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. And do not say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest or to impress people. Do not utter words that cause division and hatred. Do not spread news that you do not know to be certain. Do not criticize or condemn things of which you are not sure. Always speak truthfully and constructively. Have the courage to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten your own safety. Have a look at a little bit more because they really sort of unpack these precepts of ours and make a bit more, bring out a bit more detail. He says, Make every effort to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Think of in communities, um, it's, this doesn't always mean it's kind of working out every, every detail of the conflict. Sometimes it just it's just up to one one party in the conflict to um, back down. Uh, even even if they feel like um, they're in the right. Just to be able to to uh, let go of one's the, of one's rightness. Not speaking, this is um, Sandy Eastoke saying this, not speaking against, against others requires a willingness to see our part in our difficulty with other people, to speak our experience honestly and negotiate mutual change. The reward is the trust that just keeps love growing. Thich Nhat Hanh introduces uh, precepts which are around a theme that doesn't appear in, in directly in our list. The very f f uh, the first three of his fourteen precepts are about views. Do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. Buddhist systems of thought are guiding means; they are not absolute truth. Do not think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life and to observe reality in yourself and in the world at all times. Then the third one, do not force others, including children, by any means whatsoever to adopt your views, whether by authority, threat, money, propaganda, or even education. 
However, through compassionate dialogue, help others to renounce fanaticism and narrowness. Get, get, get a sense of how um, much he must have seen the, the destructive nature of clinging to views. And it's to remember that, that these precepts were forged in the crucible of the war in Vietnam. Uh, in which millions were killed and which was can be understood, at least to some degree, as an ideological battle between capitalism and consumerism, or communism, rather. So. His, um, going back to the, um, the speech precept here, um, he says... Do not spread you news that you do not know to be certain. This is pre-Facebook pre precept, but, but tailor-made for, for this world we're in now. Not to spread news that you don't know to be certain. In other words, not to, not to um, disseminate information that you're not sure about. It's interesting to ask the question... Uh, where do algorithms fit into this? These, these, these um, basically mechanisms set up to organise information. We, I think, we need to be sure that we're we're um, getting our our information from a variety of different places, and. Um, try and find trustworthy sources for information. Well, we've been going for 40 minutes. I want to leave a bit of time for discussion. So um, we'll do the same thing. We can maybe turn the lights up a little bit and um, do the same thing that we did last time, which is um, just turn to the person next to you and um, you can just discuss a minute one of these one of these two questions or both if you have time um, so the first one is um, how do you understand the the precept not to withhold spiritual or material aid but to give them freely where needed how else could you express this and um, the other one is just the with the with the precepts around speech. What what is has been the most challenging one for you, and and what insights have you had around speech in in working with the precepts? So e either either the of those um, two questions or both if you have time, and we'll just. Um, uh, Call everybody back, and if people want, to, if there's anything that people want to share at that point, we can we can do that. So, um, looks like it's got even number of people. So I'll I'll stay out of the mix, and you can just um, pair up with the person next to you. Could you read the questions again? Could you give us the questions again? Yeah. So. Um, how you understand not to withhold spiritual or material aid, but to give them freely when needed, and what um, struggles or insights 
have you had around the, the, the precepts to do with speech? 